Spirit to come and attend to us and translate the words of this passage and my words to each of the individual lives present here. Uh, Lord, uh, we um, stand before you now to hear your word, and we ask that you would address us. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs> Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible says uh, that the nature of our hearts is that they are deceptive, that they cannot be trusted, that our hearts are full of half-truths. And uh, which is an interesting thing because actually when you come to this passage, one of the things that this passage warns us about is that, okay, we all have, this is our nature to have these hearts uh, that's, that speak lies, speak things that can't be trusted. And uh, in particular, the person who is most gullible when it comes to listening to our hearts, the person that our uh, hearts are most deceptive towards is ourselves, right? This is what Paul uh, warns here in verse uh, 18. Let no one deceive himself. We have a propensity to be blind to the reality of what we are like. We are blind to ourselves. And uh, actually, this is something I, I learned uh, probably about 15 years ago. I, I've shared with many of you that when I was a teenager, I got sent away to a, a boys' behavioral modification program. I was, I was sent away from home for a year and a half. And, uh, in, and I was, you know, trying to get my life turned around. And a part of this program that I was in was that uh, every day, three times a day, we had group feedback time where you'd sit in a circle and everyone would tell everyone what they thought of them. And what, you know, my experience of you is that you're really annoying today. And uh, my experience of you, you talk too much. My experience of you, you don't talk at all. And, uh, and everyone just tells you uh, what you're like. And you sit and you have to hear that every, every day. And actually, at three times a year, they would crank it up a little bit. And they had these seminars that we would go through where in the seminar you would stand on a chair and you'd have about 50 kids, you know, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, that would all tell you you know, just popcorn style, this is what they thought of you. Everything they thought of you, whatever they thought, they'd just be totally frank and honest with you. And the whole idea was that basically you can't see yourself. And, and actually things that uh, you were completely unaware of are glaringly obvious to everyone else. And, and you don't even see them. And so the purpose of group feedback was to, they were, these people were acting like a video camera to show you this is, uh, this is what you look like. This is what your life is like. This is who you really are. And the reason for that was because we had such a propensity to lie to ourselves about what we're like. This is something that the Bible teaches. And I'll tell you, of course, I was incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, as you imagine, three times a day, everyone telling you all your flaws and picking And, you know, I'll tell you, it taught me. It was training and taking criticism, right? Because you had to hear that three times a day. And it's like, all right, you just got to, all right, receive it. But, um, but what, it sh what it showed us was how incredibly hard we work to organize our lives, to organize our conversations, to organize our in interactions with people, to hide certain things about who we are, to hide them from others and to hide them from ourselves. And so we keep ourselves blind to what is, obviously, uh, what is often glaringly obvious to everyone else. And so self-deception, which we're talking about this morning, 
is a big part of uh, our relationships, is a big part of our work life, it's a big part of our church life together, and it's a big part of the work that God is doing in us, is coming to terms with um, our self-deception, or as uh, Randy Williams, who's a marriage and family counselor in our church, the way he puts it is, he says that we all have blind spots. We have certain things that we're blind to that we're not even aware of that are impacting how we relate to people and relate to God. And so um, we have to ask this question, why are we laboring so hard to keep ourselves in the dark about ourselves? Why, why do we strive so hard to stay in the dark? Why do we want to be blind? And so uh, this is what we're going to be looking at this morning, and I'm going to make some comments about this passage and self-deception. In particular, we're going to answer these two questions. What is the cause of self-deception? Why are humans... Uh, deceive themselves so badly? Why does that such our pattern? And second, what is the cure of self-deception? So what is the cause and what are the cure? Those are our two questions for the, uh, this morning. So first question is this. What is the cause of self-deception? Why does the Bible say that our hearts are this way? Uh, that the heart is deceitful above all things? And two answers to the question in this passage. The first is this. This passage says that we are blinded by thinking that we are wise. We are blinded when we think that we are wise. And you see that there, verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may, became, that he may become wise. He says the reason that we're self-deceived, the way that you deceive yourself is by thinking that you are wise in this age. Now what does that mean, wise in this age? Well, I think it means, you know, to be wise means you know a lot of stuff, right? You know, you have a lot of information, you understand about the world, you're competent in certain things. People who are wise know how to uh, exercise a certain kind of power over the world around them. They get things done, things uh, happen they, the way they want them to. And, uh, and so this is what um, wisdom is, is b having a sense of control over the world and knowing how to control the world. Or thinking that we know how to control the world. That's what wisdom is. And, um, and now competency, being competent and knowing how to do things well in the world and being confident in the world is not a bad thing. But if you combine that, this desire to control my world, to be competent and know everything's going to work the way I want it to, you combine that with the main idea of our world, which the main idea of our world is, of this age, is that there's no God. You combine those two things and you get, and you say, I want to be in control, and there's no God. You add those two things together, what do you get? You get that I'm going to be God. I'm going to be God of my own world, and I'm going to control my own, my, the reality around me um, with my wisdom and with my competence. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, maybe this is true for any of us sitting here, but certainly in, in our culture, if you ask someone, is it a good thing for someone to think that they're God? You actually get really two opposite, very honest answers. Because one person will say, absolutely it's good for someone to think they're their own God. You should make your own decisions. You should take control of your life. And you should you know, visualize the reality that you're going to make and you can control your own destiny. All these things, of course, that's, that's actually becoming who you are. It's becoming your own God. It's dead serious. And of course, as Christians, and as, as what the Bible says, we hear someone say, be your own God. You're not God. Come on. I mean, isn't that obvious? You know, I, was, I, I, I remember sometimes uh, my parents uh, 
live in Bellevue, and they, they live on a hill that when you go up to the top of the hill, there's this view that looks out, and you can see the kind of Seattle skyline. And, I, you know, I, I remember when I was a teenager, I'd sit out there, and um, I'd look at the little buildings in Seattle, and I'd think, you know, this is, you know, probably 10 miles away or something like that. And I'm thinking, there's all these little people in the little micro-machine buildings. And they're all walking around in there. And they all think they're so important. And they're just like little teeny specks in there. And to think those people are actually walking around saying things, I, I am the god of my world. It's absolutely absurd. And um, what that means is we're thinking about self-deception we have to come, uh, a couple of things that we have to recognize is that first is what an amazing falsehood that is to believe that I am God over my own, my own world, my own reality. That is a tremendous falsehood that is at the very center of how we throw ourselves into the world is a falsehood. And we have to be aware of that. And second, to see how damaging that idea is to the people around us. Because this is what happens. You know, if you have a, a lie at the center of your life, in your center of your identity, in the center of the way you interact with people, the, the main filter in which you understand everything, if you have a lie, that lie is not just going to stay by itself, right? I mean, you know how that is with lies, right? Lies always grow. You know, if someone, you know, some guy tells his wife that he's working late, but, you know, he goes out with the guys and plays pool or something like that, you know, somehow he's going to actually have to make a few more lies to make that lie work and to cover that lie. And then the lie always grows, right? And that's how it is. And you're trying to cover the lie to, to protect the formal lie. This is how the big lie of that we're God and that we're in control of our life. When you try to maintain that in your life, your life becomes filled with denial. There are all kinds of things that are obvious about you that you have to deny and in order to maintain this one lie. So let me give you an example. You know, you think of, imagine that you're, uh, working at, uh, you know, you're working at some company and you're on some team that's doing some project together and you have a manager who's kind of overseeing this team. And let's just imagine that this manager implicitly or explicitly believes that they're God. Okay? That's kind of their function. Now, first of all, you want to be on that team? You got a manager who believes he's God? What's that team going to feel like? Well, you know, gods don't need information right? They already know everything, so he's not going to be asking other people for what information to do the project better. They already have the information. They don't need to tell me. And gods certainly don't make mistakes, right? Uh, they, uh, gods do everything perfectly, so they're not going to take any kind of correction. And gods run things through obedience by telling people what to do. Is there going to be a sense of team there? There's not going to be a sense of team. And what the experience of living in the context of this lie that I am God is, um, everyone is going to see this manager. What are they going to say about this manager? This guy is self-deceived. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't know how to function. He's not, he's not aware of his ignorance. He's not, or, or, or the things that he doesn't know about, or what he is good at and what he's not good at. And he's controlling. And this is what this kind of lie, lie does, is it makes us blind to who we are. And this is not just true for non-Christians, this is true for Christians as well. As Christians, we can, even though we can say, I believe that there's a God in heaven, we can operate under the assumption that I'm in control of my own life, and I am my own God, and I determine uh, my own reality. All right? So, the ultimate cause of self-deception is that we think that we are wise, and we can control our own world, and therefore we act as God over our own lives. But, uh, Part of the reason that we do that is not only that we are blinded by uh, thinking we are wise, but we multiply our blind spots 
and, and live in denial in many of the things that are obvious to us. And this is the second thing. is not only that we're blinded by thinking that we're wise, we are blinded by also the world that we're living in. We are living in a world that is encouraging us to be blind to ourselves. And uh, you see this here, verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And what Paul says here is that the whole world system that we're living in is operating under this assumption that there is no God and that humanity is God. And they have this whole consciousness that is encouraging us. And, and that is the very, that's the very lie that determines how our world works together. And actually, you know, we've been studying 1 Corinthians uh, over the last few months. And one of the problems that was happening in 1 Corinthians is that Corinth, which is one of the great cities of the, ancient, uh, the Roman Empire, was one of the commerce centers. It was a port city in Greece. And um, there was a tremendous amount of socioeconomic diversity. There was a lot of wealthy people who were making money on all the commerce. And there were also, you know, all the slaves who were making this thing run properly. And so you had people from different socioeconomic classes coming into the church. And this idea that the wise of the world are the ones who are in control creates this socioeconomic divide. And then they brought that into the church. And so as we've talked about, actually later in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's going to talk about how when they would come to the Lord's Supper, the rich people would come and they'd, you know, feast and they'd get drunk and the poor people were waiting on them actually while they were taking the Lord's Supper together. And they'd brought in the, the, the world system of the world outside and they'd brought it into the church. And essentially what they're doing is they are not acknowledging Jesus' lordship over everything, that he is God. And that's the thing that was disrupting their relationships. And so um, this thing about the wisdom of the world is something that aggravates oppression in the world. And uh, actually you see this uh, kind of subtly. Verse 19, look at verse 19, the second half there. Uh, Paul says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Now, this is a quote from Job uh, 5, 13. And uh, if you go back to Job and read this little section that Paul's quoting from, this is what Job says. He says, He catches the wise in their own craftiness, but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of their mighty. And what he says is that when we dra- grab onto control and we want to control, control our own world, we will always hurt people in the process. We will always use that control at the expense of others. And that is what's created this divide of the rich and the poor in the world, as he says, is this idea that we think that we are wise in, in our own minds. We become self-deceptive, and we don't see um, what we are doing to the people around us. Now, what's amazing in our culture is it, you look at the last generation, over the course of the last generation, what has been our answer to the problem of poverty and oppression in our culture? Well, we look at the problem of, of poverty and we say, well, what, what do the poor need? Well, oftentimes people who are, who are trapped in poverty have all kinds of ideas about themselves that are hurting them. You know, they, they think they can't do anything. They think that they're powerless. They, you know, maybe they hate themselves. Maybe they've been abused, and so the, which are all serious problems. But the answer we've given then is, well, you know what the poor need is? They need a self-esteem boost. They need to feel better about themselves, right? The answer to, to, to getting rid of, of, of pe- the, the lower class, you know, people who are stuck in lower classes, is they need a self-esteem boost. But the problem with self-esteem is that it, it is reinforcing the lie that is aggravating this, uh, the, the divisions um, in our culture in the first place. And this is a Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard um, 
uh, has written a book called The Renovation of the Heart, which is a book that's been really helpful to me recently. And let me read a quote from him where he talks about self-esteem. He says, The initial move toward Christ-likeness cannot be toward self-esteem. Because of confusion about what self-esteem means and because realistically, I'm not okay and you're not okay. Like self-esteem is all about saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm good, I can be free, I'm powerful, I'm strong, I'm joyful, I'm happy, I'm all these things. It's telling me all these things, but the reality is I'm not. And it is encouraging the self-deception. This is what he says, we're all in serious trouble. Uh, That must be our starting point. Self-esteem in such a situation will only breed self-deception and frustration, as uh, as is now increasingly Sorry, self-esteem in such a situation will only breed self-deception and frustration as is now increasingly recognized. Self-esteem is not the answer, right? It's, so it's, it's acknowledging that we're seeing that that actually encourages the lie that I'm God and I'm in control. So what is the answer? So the cause of self-deception, the reason that we're blind to ourselves is that we believe that we are wise and therefore we can control our own reality and world around us. And, uh, and we live in a world that encourages that. And so what is the cure then for self-deception? And um, this is the second point we're looking at and uh, three answers to that from this passage that we're going to look at briefly. So the first answer is, how do I deal with self-deception? The first answer that Paul gives is that you have to admit that you're a fool. You have to embrace the fact that, we, we have to embrace the fact that we're fools. This is what he says, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself, but if anyone... Anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul says that the solution to self-deception is to become a fool in this world. What does that mean, to become a fool? Well, uh, first it means to admit that I'm not God. I can't control the world around me. I certainly don't know everything. And, uh, and therefore, to operate in the world on the assumption that I, I do make mistakes. Um, I uh, don't do everything perfectly. I'm going to have to learn from God and others. And so you, you just imagine the, the, uh, working with the manager and how frustrating it is to work with a manager who's operating on the assumption that I'm God and I can control my world into a manager who, who though hopefully is competent and knows how to do their job, but fundamentally says I'm a fool before God. And I have many things to learn. Much more. That's the team you want to be on, right? That's the team that you want to learn from. And uh, it comes from this disposition of being a fool for Jesus. Um, And being a fool is ultimately a posture of trust, right? Because when we think of a fool, what's a fool like? Fools are gullible, right? They'll believe anything. And there is a sense in which, you know, you shouldn't, there are people that you shouldn't trust. There are, there, there are protections that we should have on our life. But ultimately, at the center of who we are should be a place of vulnerability where we trust God, right? This is what, what Paul says. Love believes all things. And our desire to be God is a protectiveness that I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be gullible. I don't want to be vulnerable to someone where they could be in a position where they could hurt me. And yet... That's not what being alive looks like. Being alive looks like entrusting yourselves to others, being close to, one, uh, close to other people, and being especially close to God. And that's what being a fool is, is saying to God, I will be a fool for you. 
I'll be a fool and I entrust you and uh, I trust you and I will be vulnerable before you. So Paul says, having a trusting, the trusting heart of a fool and um, trusting the God of the Bible, you will find true wisdom. And uh, John Calvin, this is a quote from John Calvin who I've been reading his commentaries on uh, first, uh, first Corinthians. This is what he says. He is a fool in this world who renouncing his own understanding allows himself to be directed by the Lord as if with his eyes shut, who distrusting himself leans wholly upon the Lord, places his whole wisdom in him and yields himself up to God in docility and submission. And he's basically saying, this is probably, he's basically quoting Proverbs 3. This is Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your, uh, straight your paths. And then he says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And this is the result. I love this last line in Proverbs, uh, in Proverbs 3. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. And if you're not wise in your own eyes, what will be the result? It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It is life to actually be a fool before God. But the only cure is it's not simply that we're, that we're vulnerable for, before God and become a fool and be, in essence, trusting and gullible before God. We'll believe anything, he says, because we believe in his goodness. But the second thing is that we also have to realize what we have in Christ. And look at, look at what Paul says here, verse 21. So let no one boast in men... For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the uh, present or the future, all are yours. And the only way that we can entrust ourselves and say, you know, I'm willing to be a fool for God is if we realize all that we have in Christ. And he goes down this list and he's listing all these names like, uh, you know, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter. And what is he saying? He's saying, listen, all these servants that God has chosen, who are the great leaders of the church, they're all there to serve you, to give you life and to teach you. And, um, God, and it's not just that he's given you these men to be teachers, he's given you the whole world, right? Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth and that we will live in God's presence in the earth and you have this hope and you have the future and the past. You have, um, you have power over life and death. You have all of these things. And when, it's you, and when you are resting in all the things that you have in Jesus, you have the security to be a fool. Because what all of us know is that the people that are the, the most conceited, right, the, the people who think that they are the wisest in the world, are actually the people who are the most insecure, right? It's not out of abundance that you're conceited. The people who have abundance are, have, are open-handed, they're generous, they're forgiving, they're kind, they want to listen, they're delighting in everything. It is the people that are empty, that are conceited, and must defend themselves and de- defend their status as being wise all the time. And, uh, and so it is knowing the security of all that we have in Jesus, the riches that we have in Jesus, that allows us to emerge out of, the se- uh, out of our self-deception. Okay, so now this makes sense. Two cures. On the one hand, I need to be a fool. You might say, okay, that makes sense. You know, I need to be self-critical and understanding, you know, not think too highly of myself. And uh, then I'm going to begin to see my blind spots. And if I'm going to do that, I need to have a sense of security that God loves me, that even if I see uh, some of my failings, that I know that I still have God's promises. But then Paul takes it one step further. He doesn't just say that we need to 
be honest with ourselves and realize that Jesus loves us. But this is the last thing, is he says that we must let ourselves be owned by Jesus. And this is the last thing. Look at what he says in verse 23. He lists off all these things. He says, you have all things. You have, you know, Paul and Apollos and Cephas. You have the world and life and death and present and the future. And then he says in verse 23, and you are Christ. You have all these things, but you belong to Jesus. You are his possession. He has bought you with his blood. It's an interesting statement. You know, when I was, uh, when I was in uh, graduate school at Western, I was studying math. I had a math professor. In one of our, and in one of our classes, uh, someone asked him about his wife. And he says, oh, you know, what does your wife do? And he says, well, I don't refer to her as my wife. I refer to her as the woman to whom I'm married or something like that because I don't own her. Uh, you know, I don't have this possession of her. And I thought about that, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting thing. Why, why, why doesn't he want to have possession of his wife? And of course, in our culture, we say, oh yeah, no one owns me. But actually, when we're honest with ourselves, the thing that we long for more than anything is to be owned by someone. And the only reason we say, I don't want anyone to own me is because we think they're going to misuse us. They're going to take advantage of us if they, have, if they own us. But to be owned by someone who wouldn't take advantage of us, who would love us, this is the great longing of our life. This is when we can really be honest with ourselves and, and, and uh, look in the dark places of who we are is that I'm owned by Jesus. He owns me. And we think, why do I long for that? The reason we long to be owned, to be possessed, is because this is an attribute of God himself. Because what does the very next line say, right? It says, in you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is a part of God's life in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, is that Jesus, he is owned by his Father. And he himself is owned. This is a quality of God, is to be possessed, is to give yourself to another and be owned by them. And uh, this is true life. It is a part of the uh, divine nature. And so, the only way out of self-deception is to become a gullible fool before the one who became a fool for us, Right? Because Jesus, what was he? He was spit on. He was mocked. He was abandoned by the world. He was crucified. And if he's willing to become a fool for me, I will become a fool for him. And in him, I will find life and freedom from self-deception. So let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. And uh, teach us to see ourselves rightly. That we might become fools so that we might become wise in Christ. And uh, we thank you, Jesus, that you have become a fool for us. And uh, Lord, I pray for those who are here, um, for each one of us who we have blind spots that must be faced, that you must uh, bring your light into. Would the gospel instruct us as we enter into that process, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.